Well, it's so good to be together tonight with God's people, and uh, we just appreciate so much you making this a part of your Thanksgiving tradition and uh, being here uh, as a family and maybe even bringing uh, some family that uh, came in from out of town. And again, we want to just give a special uh, welcome to those of you who are visiting with us here at Lakeside. And we just think there's no better time of year to celebrate communion, right, than than on Thanksgiving Eve, uh, just what are we most thankful for? And that's our salvation in Christ, which communion represents, right? It's a time to remember uh, our salvation and what Christ has done for us so that we could be forgiven for our sin and made right with God. And so in preparation for our time together tonight, I want you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, and I want to just spend some time walking through the first seven verses here of Ephesians chapter 2. Let me begin just reading uh, the text here for us tonight. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Paul writes, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for this very critical text in your word. I pray that your spirit would move amongst us now through your word, and we know that your word never returns void. It always accomplishes the purpose for which you send it forth. And so I pray that we would just see the word accomplishing great and mighty things in our hearts tonight. Lord, as we sit under the teaching of your word, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was a joy to listen to a number of you share tonight what you're thankful for. And if we were to get the microphone around to everyone tonight, there is one thing that every one of us share in common that we could be thankful for and we could all say with great gusto is that, you know what, I'm just thankful to be alive. I'm just thankful to be alive. Now, typically you hear that expression. It's a common expression that that you hear after someone has been maybe rescued from some disastrous situation or they've survived a near-death experience and, or maybe they're battling a life-threatening disease and they get interviewed by a newspaper or radio or a magazine and, and typically you'll hear a quote, right? They'll say, I- I'm, just, I'm just thankful to be alive. Well, few of us have, have ever experienced these kinds of, of near-death experiences or life-threatening diseases, but... But from a spiritual perspective, whether we realize it or not, all of us are battling a life-threatening disease. It's called sin. And we're all facing certain death and we'll spend eternity in hell unless we're rescued by God's grace and mercy. And here in the opening chapters of, of the book of Ephesians, Paul was explaining to the Christians there in Ephesus 
the doctrine of salvation, how they, how they had been saved by God's grace. And in the first chapter, chapter 1, and, and uh, verse, specifically verses 3 through 14, Paul gave a general explanation of, of God's plan of salvation, how we were elected by the Father, how we were redeemed by the Son, and how the Holy Spirit seals us. And then when he gets to chapter 2, he, he gives a more detailed explanation of, of, of God's process of salvation. Exactly how does this plan work itself out? And he talks about what God did and how he did it and why he did it. And um, really, verses 1 through 7, you, don't, you wouldn't pick this up from just reading the English translation here, but in the original language, uh, this is just one long sentence in the Greek, verses 1 through 7, just, just one sentence. And uh, it's helpful when you look at a sentence, right, to determine what is the point of that sentence, what is the author trying to communicate. You look for the subject and you look for the verb. And, and really, uh, the subject and the verb don't come until verse 4. God is the subject of this sentence. And the verb, what did God do, right, the action doesn't come until verse 5. It says, he made us alive. So maybe you might want to underline that in your Bible or circle those two words, God and, and made us alive, because that's the point of this verse, or, or I should, be, should, should say of these verses of this one long sentence. You say, well, what is verses 1 through 3 all about? If it took him that long to get to the, usually the subject is the very beginning of the sentence, right? Well, what was he doing there? Well, in verses 1 through 3, he was really explaining what it means to be dead in sin. He was, he was setting us up, if you will. He was preparing the ground uh, for what he was about to say uh, in, in, in verse 4. He, he knew, Paul knew, that we wouldn't truly be able to comprehend and appreciate grace unless we understood the awful condition that we were in and would still be in if God's grace had not acted on us. And so that's why he began by describing what we were like before we were saved. And he led his readers on this, this horrifying walk through uh, the spiritual graveyard of lost souls and, and lets us come face to face with, face to face with the, the grisly and ghastly spiritual zombies that we once were. Now, I chose that image, spiritual zombie, because uh, I think you're aware that that's kind of a, uh, become a craze in our culture today. When I was younger, that was just like only weirdos ever talked about zombies and zombie apocalypse and, right, that, they, that was the, the stuff of B movies, right? I mean, that wasn't mainstream. But now it's like the, the, the big blockbuster movies are about, are about zombies and, and the, the most popular television shows on, uh, on cable network now are, are about zombies. And uh, just a little bit of exposure I've had, I've got teenagers and for some reason they think that's kind of cool, zombies are kind of cool things, uh, so I've just kind of looked a little bit at these movies with them and these TV shows and I, I, for me it's hard to imagine anything more gross, more hideous, more disgusting and downright nasty than a zombie. But there is something worse than a zombie and that is you and me before we were saved. Nothing is more hideous, more horrifying, more grisly, more ghastly than an individual living in a depraved state of sin. 
And in the first three verses here of Ephesians 2, Paul graphically describes the zombie-like state of every human being without God. This is one of the the clearest descriptions of, of the sinfulness of man found anywhere in God's Word. In fact, this is where theologians came up with the doctrine of of total depravity, as they they call it, which basically means that every human being is totally and completely infected, how how you like that, Walking Dead fans, right? Infected with and completely corrupted with sin. Sin has affected every facet of our existence, our body, our mind, our emotions, our conscience, our will. It just permeates us and has rendered us completely helpless. Another word for depravity is inability. And there's no better word to describe depravity and inability than the word dead. Notice how he begins. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You know what that word means in the Greek? Dead. Okay? Now, we know, obviously, Paul was not referring to being physically dead because the people he was writing to were alive and well, and so are we. We're still very much alive. But he was using this word as a metaphor to describe the lost condition of man. He was speaking spiritually, not literally. Spiritually, we are completely incapable of responding to God. We're totally insensitive and unreceptive to to God and anything else for that matter, spiritually speaking. We, we do not and cannot respond to spiritual stimulus of any kind. We are a spiritual corpse. I don't know if any of, any of you have had, an, had the opportunity to be around a dead body. Um, I don't frequent them, just so you know, but there was uh, an unforgettable experience I had when I was taking a hospital chaplaincy class uh, in seminary, and so a guy brought us down to the USC Medical Center and uh, wanted just to expose us, this was in California, and wanted to expose us to, to everything you could possibly face in a hospital. And so one of the things he did one day on our agenda was to go to the morgue um, and, and go and watch an autopsy. And uh, I was astounded at the, the, I mean, I thought I was going into somebody's garage with the, the power tools that they were using on this dead body. And I don't mean to be gross or graphic, but they were using a, a power saw and they were using hammers and chisels. And guess what? That body didn't say a word. You come to my skull, right? Come next to my skull with a power saw. I'm going to move. I'm going to get out of the way. I'm going to jump up off that table and run, right? Well, that body... That dead person didn't move a muscle. Why? Because he's dead. He couldn't move a muscle. And I think this is important that we understand that that we cannot do anything apart from Christ. I mean, you you could do anything you want to a a, a dead body, right? And and it won't respond. Dead bodies don't do anything but lie there. And I think many Christians... I don't understand how they can just insist on this free will idea, right? That somehow we have the ability to choose to accept or reject Christ. What they fail to take into account is that none of us can make a single move toward God until he brings us back to life. We're not just sick. We're not just passed out. We're dead. Sometimes you 
maybe get the picture of, our, of your salvation was something like you were out there drowning right in the lake or out there drowning in an ocean and, and here comes Jesus, right? And, and he throws us the lifesaver, right? He throws it out there and we grab a hold of it and he hauls us in, right? And we're saved. Well, that's not a, a, a biblical picture of salvation. A biblical picture of salvation is that you drowned, you're not flailing around in the water. You are not drowning. You drowned. You went down to the bottom of the lake, the bottom of the ocean, and, and you had seaweed all around you, and you were, you were a goner, right? And Jesus plunged into the depths, and he hauled you back, dragged you to shore, and gave you mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. He gave you CPR. He regenerated you. You say, how, do, how did we get dead? He says, you were dead. Well, well how did we die? What killed us? Sin. Right? The wages of sin is what? Death. And in Adam and Eve in the garden, we, we remember when sin entered into the human race, God said, listen, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or you will surely what? Die. And they disobeyed, they sinned, and they died. Now, did they drop dead instantly in the garden? No. They continued to go on living but they experienced immediate spiritual death. And so here we understand that separation, the death here is talking about separation from God, not just the cessation of life. And so by their one sinful act in the garden, they plunged the entire world into sin. And when they died, we died. We were separated from God, Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin. You say, wait a minute, that's not fair. That wasn't my fault. I wasn't there when it happened. But what happens when one guy steps over the line? One, one football player, right? One of the 11 guys on the field steps over the line. He's offsides. Who gets penalized? The whole team, right? Nobody argues. Well, that, it wasn't me, ref. Why are, you, why, why are you penalizing me? I didn't do it. He did it. No, it affects the whole team, Right? And it's like every human being was standing there sinning along with Adam and we are just as guilty of that sin as he was and we deserve to be punished for it in the same way he was and the fact that you sin and that I sin every day proves it. And so he says we're dead in our trespasses and sins by reason of or because of our trespasses and sins. That word trespass there it talks about falling or slipping from the way. And, and don't think for a second that it was like, oops, I'm sorry, I kind of got off track here a little bit. No, this is a deliberate straying off of the path that God has set for us. This is a defiant crossing of the divine line in the sand, right? God says, this is the line in the sand, don't cross it. And we're like, okay, right? We're just defiant. Um, it, it, we blatantly go outside the boundaries that God has marked out for us. He says, no trespassing, and we're just like, we go there anyway. And so we're dead in our trespasses and sins. That word sin is the common word for sin there uh, in the New Testament, harmatia, which means to fall short of a target. It was a, a word that was used in hunting uh, of, a, of an arrow that fell short of its goal. It, it, it missed the mark. And so spiritually speaking, all of our thoughts, all of our words, all of our deeds fall short of God's standard of perfection. We all have sinned and fall, what? Short of the glory of God. And these two words, really, uh, trespasses and sins, they, they give a, a comprehensive understanding of both the active and the passive elements of sin. 
In other words, the things that we do, right, those are the transgressions or the trespasses, and then the, the, the sins, the things we fall short of are the things we don't do, right? There are sins of commission uh, and there are sins of omission. The sins of commission are the, the wrong things that we do, right? We know we shouldn't do, but we do anyway, and, and sins of omission are the things we omit, right? The things that we know we should do, but don't do. And so we're both rebels and we're failures, Spiritually speaking, we're rebels and we're failures. And so it doesn't matter how physically fit you are or how mentally alert you are or how morally upright you are or generous you are or kind you are, you may, you're, you're dead. You, be a, you might be a nice person, but you're a nice dead person. And not only are we dead in sin, notice we're dominated by sin. Paul got even more specific about what it means to be dead in our trespasses and sins. And he revealed here in verses 2 and and, and 3 forces, three particular forces that that control us, kind of like a zombie is controlled by some force, right? Causes them to act a certain way. And there's basically three forces that seek to control every human being. What are they? The world, the flesh, and the devil, right? Right? And Paul highlights all three of these forces and shows how before we were saved, we lived in bondage to the world and to the devil and to our flesh. Notice how we're dominated by the world. He says, in which you formerly walked or lived, verse 3, among them we too all formerly lived. He's talking about our behavior, our conduct. He said, you formerly walked according to the course of this world. We, we lived our lives based on the standards of the world. We went along with the culture. We thought like the world thought. We acted like the world acted. We did and said what everyone else, everyone else did and said, whatever we saw on TV, whatever we saw in the movies or heard on the radio or read in the newspapers and magazines. We just adopted the world's value system. We embraced the world's philosophies, their perspectives, their, priori- their priorities. We were just totally wrapped up in the world and felt perfectly at home here. The world has successfully squeezed us into its mold. And so he says we are dominated by the world, but also we're dominated by the devil. Notice he says, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. This is a reference to the devil, who is the evil dictator over the entire world system. He rules over the earth. You say, I thought God ruled over the earth. Well, yes, that's true. Ultimately, God is sovereign over all things, but he is also temporarily granted Satan permission and power to rule over the world. John 12, 31 calls Satan the ruler of the world. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 calls him the God of the world. And 1 John 5, 19 says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. You ever seen a marionette? Right? That's, that's us. We, we, that's what he's saying, that we were controlled, right? We, we lived according to the prince of the power. We did whatever he told us to do. And we were like a marionette on strings to Satan. And with the help of his demonic minions, Satan has succeeded in, 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 in controlling the whole spirit of the age, which influences and inspires people to live in rebellion against God. And he calls them, he says, it is now working in the sons of disobedience. That was a Hebraic expression, a a Hebrew uh, way of talking about you're the son of something. In other words, you're characterized by something. 
And so Paul was saying that the chief characteristic of our lives was disobedience. That's all we did. We habitually disobeyed God. That was our life. Before we were saved, we were under Satan's sway. We were held captive by him to do his will. But that's not all. Not only were we dominated by the world and dominated by Satan, we were also dominated by our flesh. Notice verse 3, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. In other words, we can't blame all of our sin on the world and on Satan, right? They simply appeal to our flesh. The way I like, the way I think about it is Satan uses the world to appeal to our flesh. That's how those things work together. It's like the little girl who who kicked her brother and pulled her hair and her mom scolded her and and disciplined her for kicking her brother and pulling her hair. And she said, well, mommy, Satan made me kick him, but pulling his hair was my idea. Right? So what's going on here? Some of the, you know, we try to blame Satan sometimes for some of our sin, but the bottom line is that we're simply indulging the desires of our flesh and our mind. In other words, our flesh craves sin and it's consumed with gratifying itself at every turn without restraint. And so we, before we got saved, what Paul's saying is, our, is that our actions and our words and our thoughts were governed by, by these selfish impulses and desires of our flesh. We just did whatever we felt like doing. Whatever felt good, we did it. And yet we were enslaved to sin. All we wanted to do was sin, and all that we could do was sin. And so not only were we dead, not only were we dominated by sin, but we were also doomed. Notice the end of verse 3. He says, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. Now, we don't like to talk about God's wrath, right? That's not a very politically correct thing to talk about, but Paul was very open about it. We just sang about it, right, Uh, in that last song, In Christ Alone. But he says, we were children of wrath. We were, we were objects of divine displeasure. What, what do we mean by God's wrath? Well, I think God's wrath is simply his settled disposition and resolute action against sin. In other words, it's, God's wrath is what he feels about sin and what he must do about sin. How does God feel about sin? He hates sin, right? And he must punish it. Why? Because sin contradicts his character, it violates his word, it distorts his image in us, it spoils his creation, it damns us to hell. I think those are good reasons, right, to to be mad at sin and to want to judge sin. And the ultimate punishment for sin is hell. That's where we all deserve to spend eternity, not just because of what we've done, but because of who we are. Notice he says we were by what? Nature. Children of wrath objects of God's wrath. We were innately sinful and evil. In other words, sin is not something that we learn how to do. It's something that we're born with. Don't ever believe what the world says that we're inherently good, right? And we're, we're born neutral. We're a blank slate and then society writes on us, our parents and our siblings and society, right? And they, that determines who we are and who, what we become. We don't become sinners when we sin. We 
Sin because we are sinners. Sin is who we are. We were, we were born DOA, dead on arrival, okay? We, when we got here, we were dead. We didn't become dead. We were dead. And notice what Paul says here, even as the rest. We were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Paul's including everybody in this description. This is not just the Gentiles, right? Jews were, were convinced that, that the Gentiles were objects of God's wrath, were children of God's wrath. They deserved to experience God's wrath. They would never have thought that about themselves. Paul's saying, no, listen, this is Gentiles, this is Jews, this is even me. He includes himself. He doesn't leave anyone out of this, this graphic description of our deadness and sin. And so I just say that because I don't want anybody here tonight thinking, well, you know, yeah, this is just, uh, I can see this, you know, this is how, what a terrorist is like, this is what a, a mass murderer is like, this is what a, a pedophile is like, this is what a prostitute is like. No, this is what you're like. This is what I'm like. This is the condition of, of the entire human race. I think this is important, especially for some of you children and young people here um, who you've grown up in a Christian home and, and, and you've lived a good moral life on the outside, right? And I've shared this before that that, that was my testimony and I, I was embarrassed and even ashamed at some point to, to share my testimony because I hadn't done anything that bad. I used to like the testimonies of the, the guy who was, you know, the drug dealer and how God miraculously saved and, and the person that was doing this great sin and he was in the mafia and, he, you know, he got transformed. His life. Like, wow, that's so awesome. And I just grew up in a Christian home and, uh, you know, came to Christ at a young age and, you know, at a, at a five backyard Bible club and eating cookies and punch and it just didn't seem very exciting. Like, well, guess what? I didn't understand the magnitude of my sin. My problem was I was thinking that those people were worse sinners than me. But the more I've studied God's word, I realize I'm the worst sinner I know. And that I was hanging off the same cliff at the same level as everyone else. And I needed, I needed to be rescued just as much as that drug dealer or that mafia guy. Why? Because we were dead to God, helplessly dominated by sin and hopelessly doomed for hell. Don't forget that good little Christian kid growing up in a Christian home, going to church all your life, right? This is a description of what your heart is like. I mean, what a horrifying position to be in. And if we're not truly horrified at, at who we were and what we deserve, then we'll never truly appreciate what God did to save us and what comes next. And, and so if, if he just started off in, verse, in, in chapter 2, verse 1, and said, but God being rich in mercy... Well, yeah, that's neat, that's exciting, but how much more, right, after saying what he said in verses 1 through 3, we get to verse 4, and he says, but God. Right, it's like he, he spent his time painting this, it's just black backdrop. You were watching some guy painting, and all he did is black, black, everything's black, 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 just a big black. What is this guy's problem? It's just all black, right? And you're like, this guy's not really a good artist, and then all of a sudden, after he's painted this black background, he takes some white paint and just goes whoosh across that. And you're like, wow, right? It stands out. But God. I don't know if you did this when you were younger, but I used to like to do this when I was out with my buddies in the car at night and you'd turn the headlights off. 
You know what I'm talking about? You're, you're driving along, maybe down a, a dark road, and, and you turn the headlights off, and you see how long you can go before you turn them back on again. I'm not advocating this, young people, okay? You know that, okay? I, this was in my, you know, when I was dead in my trespasses and sins. That was when I was, right? But, but you know, you turn those lights off, and you just kind of start freaking out, right? And, like, somebody's like, shut them on! You turn the lights off, oh, and there's a sense of relief, Right? Well, basically, Paul flips the headlights off in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and we're driving along going, Paul, Paul, what are you doing? Turn the lights on. And he turns the lights, the headlights back on here in chapter 4, verse 4, and, and we're just like, ah, oh, thanks, Paul. You're crazy, dude. Don't do that again. And so he shows us here how God graciously intervened to rescue us from the helpless, hopeless situation that we were in and how he radically transformed our lives. And, and, and the question is, well, what would motivate God to save us from our sin? How, how, did he, how, how did he save us? What did he do and why did he save us? And Paul answers these questions in, in verses 4 through 7 and, and his motivation is very clear in verse 4. It says, But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. It was His rich mercy. His, his mercy was without measure. was unlimited. You cannot calculate it or, or plumb the depths of his, of his mercy. We know mercy to be uh, compassion and pity. Uh, you see someone in need and you have a desire to relieve them, right? He, God had mercy on us. Uh, we say that grace is, is getting what we don't deserve, right? And mercy is not getting what we do deserve. I tried to teach this concept to my kids when they were little, and uh, I remember one time when I was needing to go into the bedroom and spank Zach, and he was little, maybe two, three years old. No, it couldn't have been because Hannah was, Hannah was alive too, so it had to be maybe four. He was probably like four, so she was two, he was four, right? So, um, so I'm telling him, so I was, I was ready to spank him, and I said, hey, Zach, what do you deserve? He's like, spanking, you know, <laughs> spanking, and, and I said, okay, buddy. I said, I want to show mercy to you. And so I'm not going to give you what you deserve. I'm not going to spank you. I'm going to, ha- I'm going to have mercy on you. Just a little, right, little concept, trying to teach a little four-year-old mind. What is mercy? It's not getting what you deserve. So I just hugged him and said, you're free to go. Well, apparently a couple of days later, he disobeyed Kelly when I wasn't there. And Kelly took him to the bedroom and was ready to administer the spank, Right? And Zach looked at her and said, Mommy, have mercy on me. <laughs> so he had learned that, apparently. And, and Hannah, she, we never got to try that on her because she was already like really sensitive to the Lord, I guess, when she was a two-year-old. So whenever we'd pick her up after she disobeyed, we'd say, don't touch, no touch. And she'd touch it, so we'd like, we got to go take her and get a spank. She would just start saying, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. <laughs> Seriously, she just started saying Jesus, thinking that was somehow was going to save her and keep her safe, you know, from her mom and dad. The, the point is that we deserved God's wrath and justice, but instead he chose to deal with us according to his love and his grace. He didn't give us what we deserved. His love is that sacrificial, unconditional commitment. It says because of his great love. His great love with which he loved us. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he, what? 
gave His only begotten Son. And notice again, he reminds us, he says, even when we were dead in our transgressions. By the way, don't, don't forget, right? <laughs> Just in case you forgot, don't think for a second that there was something in you that made you lovely to God. You were so lovable. No, you were, you were a spiritual zombie. You were repulsive to God. You were helpless, you were ungodly, you were enemies, according to Romans chapter 5. It would make sense to me if God loved us because we were his faithful friends, his loyal servants, but we were his violent enemies and vicious rebels who had greatly offended him. There was absolutely nothing in us that attracted him to us, only that which repelled him, and consequently was something in God himself that moved and motivated him to reach out and save us. What was it? It was his mercy and love. Amazing love, how can it be, right, that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? That's amazing. But that's what motivated him, was his great love and mercy. Notice how he intervenes, God's intervention here in the end of verse 5. It says, uh, he made us alive together with Christ By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so Paul listed the three things that God did when he saved us. How did he intervene, right? There was an intervention, a divine intervention in our lives. Number one, he regenerated us. He made us alive. God brought us back to life. He breathed into our souls by the Holy Spirit and our souls sprung to life. He caused us to be sensitive to things of God and allowed us to be able to understand and respond to God and His Word. He freed our will so that we could repent and believe in Christ. And so He made us alive. He regenerated us. And notice when He said that, He said, by grace you've been saved. Again, Paul was just overwhelmed with the amazement at what God had done and in light of what we deserved that he couldn't help but just interject a little statement that he loved to use that we're saved by grace. By grace we've been saved. He's going to go on and, and, just, and, and unpack that in verses 8 and 9. We're not going to look at that tonight. But he inserts it kind of in a little parentheses there. And so he regenerated us. Secondly, he resurrected us. It says he raised us up, verse 6, with him. He resurrected us like He did Jesus. We were declared victors over sin, death, and hell. We're no longer under God's wrath, and there is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. And then thirdly, it says He exalted us. He seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God placed us right next to His Son in heaven, where we share Christ's position of authority and his position of intimacy with the Father. He said, then why am I standing here and sitting here? Okay, that all, that's all true. Why am I still here on earth, right? Again, he's talking spiritually here. Physically, we're still here on this earth. But spiritually, we have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. He's talking about our position in Christ, Spiritually. God rescued us from the earthly realm where we once were living, wandering around aimlessly under the control of Satan, and he's opened up our lives to the spiritual realm where he's placed us right next to him in heaven, 
with Christ, in Christ. That was a, an expression Paul loved to use, probably the most important phrase in Paul's theology. He used it over 164 times in his letters to describe the Christian's spiritual union with Christ. In other words, we're united with Christ, we're related to Christ, so that what happened to Christ happened to us. It was transferred to us. It was applied to us. And so the same power that acted on Christ to raise him from the dead and seat him in the heavenly places has done the same thing for us, has intervened in our lives. And so we share in his resurrection, ascension, and exaltation. And then verse 7, he tells us here, what was God's intention? What, what was the point of all this? What was his goal? I love this. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This is the purpose, the reason. God didn't just save us to keep us from going to hell. And grant us eternal life in heaven, as great as that is. God has a far greater goal in saving us. His chief aim in our salvation is his glory. That's what he's saying here. And you know that from chapter 1. Three times he says, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. The whole plan of salvation is all about God's glory. It's not about us, it's about God. And he says, in the ages to come, right? So then in the ages to come, what is that? From now and for all eternity... He might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That word show means to demonstrate, to put on display. And it's in a tense in the Greek language that, that means that the subject is acting in his own interest. In other words, why did God do all this? So that in the ages to come, he might show off. You might want to write that in your Bible. Show off the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And the cool thing about it is, is that God, when God shows off, he shows off through us. He shows off through us. The moment we get saved, we become a living, breathing display or exhibit or monument of the riches of God's grace. I heard a story of a, an extremely wealthy woman who was well known for her amazing jewelry collection. And someone was visiting her in her home one day and said, would you show me your jewels? And the woman immediately called her two children and said, these are my jewels. And I think it's the same with God. If God was asked to show off his jewels, he wouldn't respond by showing us the stars in the heavens or the mountains, the magnificent mountains or any of the many other breathtaking places that he created. He would simply point to those of us who have been saved by his grace, and he would say, these are my jewels. These are my treasures. And so God's purpose in saving dead, depraved, damned sinners like you and like me is so that throughout all eternity, we would join with the angels to marvel at and praise and glorify God for his amazing grace. John Newton said it best, right? When we've been there, what? 10,000 years Bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. That's what we're going to be doing. So God's going to be showing off through us through all eternity. That's why he did this.
I don't know if I've ever told you this, but we've got a miniature Australian shepherd named Shadow. And uh, he, he's a rescue dog. We got from our neighbor who volunteers at the local pound, and she brought home these five puppies who were left at the doorstep of the pound, and obviously they would be euthanized, right, if somebody didn't claim them. And so she was trying to get some people to claim them, and so uh, all it took was Hannah batting her eyelashes at her dad, right, and saying, oh, dad, he's so cute. Can we get him? Can we keep him? Right? And so we got this little, little cute little Australian shepherd who grew up. And I would just say this about Shadow. He is the happiest, most playful dog that we have ever had, I've ever met, okay? And our kids think he's awesome. I think he's awesome, but he drives Kelly crazy. <laughs> and I think the funniest thing, right, it's always, I don't know why animals do this. They know the one that, like, has the hardest time with them, and, and they'll actually go to them and they'll be, they'll go and they'll like jump up on them and they'll, they'll sit at their feet and they'll, right, beg at their place at the table, right? So this is what Shadow does. And no matter, he's got the whole house to himself, right? He can go anywhere he wants in the backyard. And when he comes in, he'll go and he'll actually literally sit on Kelly's feet <laughs> and just look up at her. It drives her nuts. And uh, so one time I said, babe, He's just, he's just thankful to be alive. You saved his life. And he knows that, right? You saved him from certain death. You rescued him. And you know, I think it's the same for us, right? We wouldn't be here if it weren't for God's grace that rescued and saved us from certain death. Are you just thankful to be alive? I am. I'm just thankful to be alive. Spiritually speaking, right? No longer dead in my trespasses and sins, but alive to God. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a massive commentary on the book of Ephesians. And in the very beginning, he just kind of sets the stage with these words. He says, there's nothing so lacking in Christian life today as a sense of wonder. Why? He said, there's only one answer to that question. It is because we do not realize what God has done for us. It's because we do not know what sin is, what sin is in us, because we do not realize what we were and what God has done for us and how he has done it and why he has done it. If we realize these things, we could not help praising God. It is because we do not realize these things that there is so little sense of wonder in our Christian life. And then he says this, he says, pray that the eyes of your understanding may be enlightened, that you may realize the pit out of which you have been hauled up, the depths to which you had sunk, your former terrible, precarious, perilous position, and what God has done for you by his grace in Christ. The understanding of these things is essential to a sense of wonder, love, and praise. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you that we've been overexposed at times, it seems, to your grace and your mercy and your love and your amazing plan of salvation, and there's a lack of, of, of wonder and love and praise in our hearts. And so we thank you for passages like this that we've looked at tonight, just to, to, to remind us of, of how bad it really was. But Lord, you don't just leave us there in the pit, but you... Show us how 
much you loved us, enough to rescue us and deliver us from our sinful state. And we know it's all because of your grace, your riches, your undeserved, unearned riches that you've chosen to pour out upon us. Lord, I pray that as we um, prepare our hearts now to take communion and to celebrate that grace, Lord, that we would in our hearts even begin now, Lord, for the ages to come, when we'll be worshiping you and praising you for all eternity, for your amazing grace in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.